Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 31. You know, I have some really great personal news. Um, Last night, sometime in the middle of the morning, without any drugs, after 14 hours of labor, we became grandparents again. That's with Talia and Jonathan. They live in North Carolina. Already, these two girls um, are having a sibling rivalry. Seriously. Carolina was born in Pennsylvania, but she took the name Carolina. Our new granddaughter was born in the Carolinas, and so she's going to go with Pennsylvania. So, so that's what's going to happen. So, and you believe me. Um, anyway, it is so fascinating. There's nothing like this experience. And uh, the first time this happened, three years ago, it was just a, kind of one of those difficult uh, times in life that we all have at junctures. And all the difficulty just went away when we became grandparents. It just was like, oh, wow, this is what it's all about, you know. And so many of you know what that's like. Uh, this last couple of days, I was in Boulder. And I was um, at a, a Disciples Today yearly board meeting. And uh, Disciples Today is flourishing in so many different ways. And um, on our team, of course, is Keith Rose, administrator for uh, Disciples Today. And he's one of the reasons we functioned really well. He wasn't able to be there, but he's here today. And we'll be speaking a little bit at the end of service. But um, at that meeting, uh, on our board was added Anthony Glang about a year ago. And I got to spend some real good time with Anthony. He sends you his love. And uh, he gave me some really good advice pertaining to our ministry, which I'll share with you on Friday night. Uh, but they're, they're fantastic. Well, um, we're going to be talking out of the story, out of the book of Exodus, a, a particular episode where this phrase, those who were willing, is said six times. And it's a powerful story, and I would like to give you the context to it so that you can uh, embrace it the same way that I have. First of all, in Israel's history, uh, we find the first really clear, I think in world history perhaps, uh, a narrative which shows what organizations and churches have since made it a priority is to figure out what is their vision, what is their mission, what is their core values, what is their identity, and these kinds of things. And if you were to go look at Israel, here's what you would figure out just with the Exodus story. And by the way, the book of Exodus is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. That story is the most monumental event. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand this book. And so the uh, founder, of course, of this religion is Yahweh. He introduces his name and what it means in the third and fourth chapter of Exodus, which means I am who I am. Basically, if you extrapolate it in the mind of an ancient Hebrew, it means I always was, I am everywhere, and I will always be. And that's what his name means. Sometimes people have uh, referred to him as Jehovah, and you get a capital L-O-R-D in our NIVs to say there's a long reason for that. But really, it's a, a true name is either Yahweh or Jehovah or some name like that. We don't know how many syllables there were because the Hebrew language only has constants. Um, so then uh, the vision of ancient Israel was uh, we're going to a home of our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's called the promised land. And uh, that's what their vision is. 
And it's really important to understand that in the ancient context, land meant everything. You, some, you were not whole if you didn't have a land of your own. And then, of course, the mission was there's threefold. The first mission in Exodus is the Exodus. And it takes almost 20 chapters to bring us through the story where they were 400 years away from their home where the renters, the Canaanites, were not even paying rent. And they wanted to get back. And they lost their identity being swelled up now as slaves in Egypt. And so this story, very filled with rich information, shows how Moses was raised up to lead them out. And he gets them to the Sinai Peninsula. So the first mission was to get out of Egypt and get to a place where they could regroup. The second uh, mission would be to build a moving tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle had to be so well constructed, designed, built with the best materials that it, it really lasted all the way until the reign of King Solomon, hundreds of years later. And uh, the, the construction details showed that this is quite a, a detailed edifice. And then uh, after that, the other missions were just to move from campsite to campsite until they got back home. And so that's what a mission is. Uh, The core values was really found in the Ten Commandments. And then after that, you find that their message, and this is what the message is, if they interacted with somebody uh, outside of their, their own, they would basically say, we were once slaves, but we were miraculously rescued by Yahweh. And he has provided us with these great laws, and he hears our prayers. Now, these words are actually found in the Exodus narrative and in uh, Deuteronomy. And so I just harmonized them, put them all together. But that would have been their message to foreigners who served other gods. Basically, our God's better than yours. Okay. And then uh, the identity is Yahweh, the law, and our land. Land was so important. And as you look at this map and the the area of Canaan, which was their home that they were trying to get back to, that is part of the Fertile Crescent, the most desired place in in the east, rich in resources, but it's also significant for lots of other reasons. It's where a lot of people would travel through if you were going to be over towards Europe or and uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, you would come down through Canaan to get to Egypt and to get to all of Africa. Or if you were going to go from Africa over to Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Babylon, you, or to Far East China or India, you would, you would go through Canaan. Would, the, the travel routes would take you through Canaan. No matter where you were going, pretty much, when it was deep north, south, or towards the east. And it was a highly fought over land. Historically, there were 24 world conquest battles fought in Canaan, modern-day Galilee. But the fighters were often not the residents of Canaan. It just was, it had a really great battlefield and, and near a city called Megiddo, which is where we get Armageddon from. And so, uh, so that's just really important. So now you understand a little bit about their vision, the mission, the core values, and their message and their identity. On uh, Friday night, we're going to be going through an exercise together, all of our ministries, talking about how that speaks to us even today. And now as you look at the book of Exodus, like I told you, the first 18 chapters takes us through the Exodus story. Then there's Sinai. 
Then chapter 25 through 31 is interesting. And we're going to read in chapter 31 because there's something that happens twice in the book of Exodus that I think is going to shed light on our journey here this summer. Sometimes you don't get something right the first time you do it a second time. Chapter 31 is in the middle of a text from about, I'm going to say, what do I have up there, 25 to 31, is all this instruction about building this tabernacle and setting up their community, the institution of Israel. This is the birth of Israel at this moment. In chapter 31, you find out about two guys that are important. The Lord, or Yahweh, says to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in the wood, and to engage all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I've appointed Olehab, son of Haishmach, to the of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I've also given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, the law, and so on and so forth. And this six chapters was all that they needed to build the institution of Israel. Places of worship, mechanisms for having your sins atoned for, praying, even tent of meeting, things like that. And it was all, all set up. And then something happened. Moses goes back up to the, the mountain, spends time with God. And he makes a big mistake. He puts his brother in charge. <coughs> now, his brother's a couple years older than him, and they're both in their 80s. But, you know, not everybody has the same gifts. We know that Aaron speaks well, but he wasn't much of a leader. Not at this moment. And so the people were restless, wanted to do what the pagans did. Aaron got out in front of them and said, hey, uh, I'll lead the way in it, and I'm going to lead you into a more spiritual version of your revelry. And it wasn't really a more spiritual version. He was involved in this golden calf incident. Now, we had a whole sermon on Aaron a few months ago and how he made an amazing and marvelous transformation after this. But this was one of the worst tragedies in all the Bible. It could be argued that it was the worst. Don't know. Probably you'd debate with the fall of Jerusalem around the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but it was a really big faux pas. And it was so tragic that it led to a lot of blame, blame shifting into the priests killing Israelites, and it was a scarring, horrific event that affected their morale, their sense of who are we, and a conversation between Yahweh and Moses is, Yahweh is saying, I'm going to wipe some people out, and Moses says, yeah, but, and they negotiate a settlement. Okay, so that's where you have kind of uh, this red here, meaning this was a scarring moment. What do you do after a scarring moment of shame and mistakes and sorrow? I studied, uh, as you know, I studied uh, conflict in school the last few years, and there was one particular course was independent study, and I had to look at five different uh, areas of the world, how people sorted out disputes. So I looked in the Middle East, the Americas, the Asia-Pacific, Asia 
And uh, one of the places I looked was in Africa, and a particular uh, famous mediator from dealing with Africa would deal with tribal disputes where neighbors, they all looked the same, they all dressed the same, they were of the same blood, they were interrelated at some point in recent history, but they just so happened would be of different tribes. And this happened in many different places. And, you know, we have famous ones that made into movies, but this would happen frequently in Africa. And this particular story, I think, was in Nigeria. But he was faced with the task of when a war is over and your neighbor, if you're a woman, your neighbor killed your husband or you killed your neighbor's spouse or child, and yet the only way you are going to live and survive, not thrive even, just survive, is to share resources, your agriculture. One family grows this, another family grows that. And you both need each other. Yet you're just filled with bitterness and hatred. And the intensity of the emotions at the end of the story of the golden calf incident are really apparent to me. When you've got Hebrews killing Hebrews and Aaron hasn't got his responsibility figured out. you got all this kind of messy stuff there. And so we're going to look a little bit about what happened to get them out of that. But this particular mediator would basically... He created these voice of the soul workshops, which, ba- which the idea of them was don't ever think about the other. The other would be your neighbor, a murderer, somebody who hurt you. Never think about the other. Next time you think, see them, don't think about them. Who are you? How are you regulated? What are you good at? What are you supposed to do? Have you accepted responsibility for who you are? And help people rediscover themselves. And I don't know exactly how Moses navigated all this, but it was a tough moment. But what's interesting, right on the other side, they had to do Israel 2.0. The institution got started, but before it really, they were able to build the tabernacle, they had this huge incident, they had to start all over. So what happens next is chapters 33 to the end of the book is the same instructions that were given already. And I say this for all of us. We have all been trained on how to be a great disciple, how to disciple others. Uh, Study series, how to help somebody become a Christian. Uh, How to look at our giving and our finances. How to have a great marriage. How to have great kids. How to have great relationships. And I'll tell you, just speaking for myself, there are times that I need to find Steve Staten 2.0 and 3.0. I need to get rebooted. I need recalibrated. I need trained again because I lose it. If you don't use it, you lose it. And if I've recoiled in pain and sorrow, sometimes the best way out is to just start all over again knowing what we already know to do, but get refreshed and trained in it. So I put that out to you as the journey that we will be on going forth. Let us do all the things we've been trained to do in the past, but in our getting retrained in some of these areas, let's pretend we never were trained in them before. Okay? Let's, so we want to hopefully be able to create mechanisms over a process we'll talk about on Friday night so that we can do good on the things, all the things that are important for our walk as a church. So now um, we're going to look at the comeback moment 
and Israel's history for our own inspiration, okay? I hope that the rest of what I say up here is just all inspiration. And in case I deviate, just raise your hand and say, start, start reading the text, Steve, because the text is pretty inspirational, okay? Are you with me there? Okay, so here's what we got in the story here. Uh, they went through self-reflection. We're not going to be able to cover that. Um, that's preceding the text we're looking at. Uh, that's where they would inquire of the Lord. They would go to the tent of meeting. This is this voice of the soul parallel in the Old Testament. And then realignment with core values. The, the, Moses got the law again. You remember he busted up the tablets? He came down with new tablets, fresh. And uh, they got reacquainted with the big picture of where they were going to go. And then uh, they were going to get ready to train on this mission, which is what we're going to look at right now, the comeback mission, starting in chapter 35. In chapter 35, we're going to see that they, are, they determine the needs. We've got to build a portable uh, tabernacle, worship center. We need a whole lot of resources. We need some training. And the question is, are we willing? So chapter 35, verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the, for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord, or Yahweh, an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, gold hair, ram skins, dyed red, and other type of durable leather, Acadia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and, and the onks stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. You know, where are they going to get all these resources? Well, if you paid close attention when you, the last time you read the Exodus story, they took a lot of booty with them from the Egyptians. <laughs> they had a lot. The precious metals and everything. So they had these resources. You know, we are a resource-rich community. Right here, we have a lot of resources, right? You know, we, you just think about it. How many sound-playing portable devices do you have in your household? Okay, you have probably multiple MP3 players, different versions. You threw them in a... They're sitting in a shelf somewhere you don't use, but they still work, Right? We have, we have vehicles. Most people have more than one vehicle per family. We have multiple televisions. And we have televisions we don't even use because we don't like the tube TVs, right? So we have, even though they still had another 10 years in them, you just couldn't even stand to look at them after you saw plasma or an LCD, right? Okay. So then we have stuff. We have a lot of stuff. When my wife and I moved from Naperville, Illinois, to downtown Chicago in 2005, we had five days of garage sales. I threw out 60 big, big black garbage bags over about a month period full of stuff. And we realized that I was a hoarder. Okay. I had too much stuff. And it was, I've not gone back to the too much stuff habit, except for my books. And I'm unrepentant on my books. Um, but, but, you know, we have stuff. We have a lot of stuff. If all of a sudden Walmart and Best Buy and everything all closed down and we just had to worry about what we're going to eat and stuff, we would have all the entertainment devices we would need for decades to come. We would. We'd be fine. 
And just think about it, how much stuff we have. They had a lot of stuff. The question was not whether or not they had what was helpful. It's whether or not they were going to come forward with it. Let's read on. All who are skilled among you and are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle with the tent and the coverings, clasp frames, crossbars, Posts and bases, the ark with its pools and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it, the table with its pools and its articles and the bread of the presence, the lampstands that is for light with its accessories, lamps and oil for the light, the altar of incense with its pools and anointing oil and fragrant incense and the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offerings with all its bronze grating, its pools and its utensils and bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its post and and bases, and the curtain for the entrance of the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and the courtyard, and their ropes, and the woven garments worn for ministering to the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for the Aaron the priest, and the garments for the sons as they serve as priests. When then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart was moved whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of the meeting for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold, jewels, jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. And they all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn of fine linen or goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and other durable leather brought them. Those presenting an offer of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord. And everyone who had Acadia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn of fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onk stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. You know what ephod is, right? It's an electric fod. And a personal one's called an iFod. Sorry. An ephod is a garment, a priestly garment. Kind of looks like a, a, a skirt that you would have in a kitchen if you're, you know, cooking for Thanksgiving or something. But um, it says in verse 28 they all brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. And all Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. You know, what's really, I think, powerful is this is what Moses said, but then they all withdrew. And the ones who came and gave did so because, why? They were willing. It wasn't, you need to bring this or else. This is what we're going to do and, and, and do it. But what happens, you're going to, there's something that happens at the end of this chapter that I find mind-blowing and inspirational that proves for, beyond a shadow of a doubt that this came from within, not out of duty. I don't know about you, but if somebody tells me to do something that I love doing and then they turn it into a duty, it's not as much meaningful anymore. You know what I mean? You know, like I love spending time with my wife. But if somebody's telling me I needed to spend time with my wife all the time, I'd be like, check. I mean, your, your motivations can get really weird 
if you hear too much didactic duty-bound direction for something that ought to be out of the overflow of the heart. So Moses provided a vision and a mission that made sense. And he said, by the way, there's skilled people out there. There's a lot of skill out there. And we have some especially skilled guys. One who, who does all the things that you're being asked to do, he's a, he's a trainer, and the other one's a good presenter. As you look at the two texts that talks about these men, you find out that Moses got this whole thing figured out. He's got a plan for them, but he's telling the community, you know what, you have skill. You've got stuff in you. Your contribution matters. And by the way, you also have resources. But it really, the, it, the linchpin moment was when they got back to their tents. When they withdrew from Moses, because it's one thing to say, yeah, I'll do it when you're in front of the leader, right? Okay. And when, when all eyes are on you, yeah, I'll do it. Okay. What is the uh, expected giving? What is the uh, multiple? Are you going to do it? Uh, everybody's looking at me. Yeah, I'm doing it. Okay. But when you go home and you think about, why do I do what I do? And then you come back and you come through because you were willing Why were they willing? I think the idea of this nomadic group hanging around the desert was not a very inspirational thought. They wanted to be home, and they wanted their pyramids and their religious structures and all that, but they knew it wasn't going to happen very soon. They wanted to feel like they're a people. They wanted identity. Who are we compared to these Midianites and Egyptians and Babylonians and the Canaanites that we've met a long time ago and we've heard about them and we don't like them? You know, who are we? In this direction, have a tabernacle and a tent of meeting by which you can approach God and have this law. It gave them something that's worth hanging on. This story is rich in insight. My whole month of April was studying this story. The whole story. It's just loaded with stuff for us to think about, which I want to be able to, you know, put out there in every opportunity that we can. And just think about how awesome this story was. Let's go to verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord had chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, and of the tribe of Judah. And he was filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones and work for the wood and engage all kinds of artistic crafts. Then he has given him an Ohiliab, son of a Hishmak of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. And he has filled them with the skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, and all of them skilled workers and designers. And you know the thing about this is don't we all like to do something and do it good and be able to see the work of our hands? Don't we, don't we all like to have something we're good at? We do it, we look back at it, and then we can say we did that. That's how I feel. You know, back in Chicago in 2007, we created a 3, 5, and 10-year vision. In the 3, 5, and 10-year vision, we said, we want to have ministry centers within 30 minutes of everybody that lives in Chicagoland. We want to have all, five, or all six ministry centers to have these five roles. This is what we want to do in the mission scene. And we uh, had all sorts of other, you know, like local visions. These are the churches we want to plant. And, you know, out of the, the uh, four things we accomplished in doing... Some we did with great accuracy, some we surpassed, and some we failed on. But the fact that we laid it out and made the whole process a congregational event that took three months to get everybody to say, 
explore it and buy in. Something that we believe we can do here on the west side. While we're looking for the next minister, we don't have to wait around. We don't have to sit around. We have a Bible that opens up to us all sorts of possibilities to tap into who we are. Our relationship with God. Our sense of community. Our experience. Our personal histories. The good things we've done in the past. It's all right there. And, you know, we we all bring something to the table. But are we willing? That's what this is about. Then it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, So Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord had commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and, because ability is not enough by itself, and who was willing to come and to do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers and all who were doing all the work of the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people, this is a big complaint here, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord had commanded to be done. What a problem to have. Stop the presses. So Moses gave an order and they sent the word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. Stop it. You're going overboard. You're too good. And all the people were restrained from bringing more. Because what they had already had was more than enough to do all the work. Those of us who have been around a while remember times when we said we could hire a couple to lead such and such a ministry if we can bring our contribution up and we would put it out there and we would surpass those goals. We remember times we said we need to put some more interns on our campuses and in our youth ministry. And by the way, we do need to do, we need more help in our, we need more workers in our youth ministry. But we would say we've got, we've got to get our giving up so we can really get some people dedicated in these ministries. And we would do it. And many times we would go past what we said we would do. We remember times where there was this astronomically high goal to give 18 or 20 times what we gave on a weekly basis for some world missions endeavor. Russia and the Middle East, part of our legacy here on the West Side. And we did it, and we would surpass many times. And it was exciting to see what God did in those great moments of giving. My prayer is that for us as a people this summer, we will go to the tent of meeting of God's presence and we will get close to God, each of us. We will figure out who we are before God, not the other guy. Not the person that we're mad at for something they did or said in the past. For having a different opinion or being aligned on some sort of issue or topic in the past. Anybody that gets up on stage in the next period or whatever, you ought to be happy to see them up on stage. We shouldn't be thinking, don't they still owe an apology for something? This? No, we're, not, we're beyond that. We're going to do this voice of the soul thinking of, just think about me, just think about me and God. And get, get realigned with God, and we're going to do great things. And each of us, if we take responsibility for our personal walk, it's going to be really awesome. The outcome 
of this next four months, while we're trying to figure a lot of things out, is already certified. The outcome can be guaranteed to be good if each of us just look at ourselves, our walk, take responsibility, figure out who I am, what can I bring to the table, including skills and resources. And you know what I think one of the resources that we have that never really gets highlighted, but I think is a great resource, is perspective. I love to hear people's points of view when they've expressed them in a godly way. Sometimes our life experiences gives us such great insight, and people sit on their life experience and insight. We need to, I I think we are blessed by the perspectives that each of us has from looking at life from a different vantage point. But when we do that, let us do it with great temperance and godliness. And say, here's a thought I have. Here's my perspective. We all have resources. We all have opinions. And we all have skills. I think we have a great future ahead of us. Look what they were able to make with their hands. Ark, table, lampstands, altars, basins, courtyards, ephods, garments. And the list is longer than that. And this is what... Some people said it looked like. And remember, this is mobile. It has to be able to move multiple times over generations. And so this, is, this gave them the sense of, okay, you know what? We have order. We have structure. We have leadership. We have processes. We have principles. We have law. We have a way to get our sins uh, taken care of. And they became to be a community that the whole world and the ancient world came to know and respect and look to. The law of Moses was known all throughout the world. People that had massive structures, a hundred times bigger than anything that Israel ever had in Jerusalem, knew that if you wanted to figure out what code to live by, and yours wasn't working out so good for you, you would have many philosophers and kings and pharaohs of other religions would beg and borrow and imitate the things that came out of this tribe of Hebrews. They were a special group of people. You know, we want to come back as well, right? I want to come back. Tomorrow, um, or Friday night, we are going to be revisiting some of our own vision, mission, core values, identity conversations, and it is going to be a corporate process. It's something we're going to all do together. Nobody's going to uh, deliberate and say, this is what you ought to be doing. We are going to let the Bible guide us through questions of, hey, who are we? We've been around 25 years. What about the next 25? I want to think clearly about the next 25. At least put it as a prayer for God. Put out some good roadmaps. Think about that. Um, What are some of the set needs for the immediate mission before us? What are our resources and skills that we have? How can we match them up to the things that we need? Who are our trainers? What do we need trained in? I think we all need training again. And the question is, are we willing? Are you willing? Okay, let's be thinking about that. This will be the screen that we'll talk about on Friday night, just to think, what are our needs? And look at the list of the needs we have that all four segments of our ministry, which we're bringing to closer partnership, we're going to have more meetings together where we're all together. Okay? Singles, family, marrieds, kids. And so, kingdom kids, uh, worship, teaching, Messaging, this communication in and outside the church. Location planning, event planning. You know, those things are really delicate issues. Uh, special world missions contribution. Uh, ushering, AV setup. The guys that work here, uh, real early in the morning, they probably need some replenishment, right? 
Okay, uh, counting, um, hope and benevolence, and our RFAC and other things is that these are all agencies that we need in our body to move forward to the next place. And I hope that you are inspired about that. Now, the Middle East has a mission too. And we're part of that. In just a moment, Keith Rose is going to come up and speak to some of these uh, things. But I just took two blurbs off of Disciples Today. And I want you to know about them. First of all, uh, there are, we have mechanisms in place to help us sense our needs for the Middle East. We did have a bit of a breakdown this year with figuring out the Middle East. And you'll understand why when Keith talks. But these are some of the main churches uh, Bahrain, Beirut, Cairo, Tel Aviv, Amman, Kuwait City, South Sudan, and then Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and others. And these are the ones where there's the strongest uh, presence. Um, but we have resources. We also have skills. If you want to go ahead and be a missionary to one of these areas, uh, put your name out there. But we're, we're looking to make sure that we come through the best as possible from what we are willing to do and helping out with world missions starting this coming Sunday night, uh, June 8th. And so think about that. Now, here's the story. Over the last few years, Jesse Tomei, woman's ministry leader for the church in Lebanon, has raised to stardom as a marriage counseling guru in the Middle East. She speaks on the Arabic radio and television shows about how to build effective and lasting marriages. Her TV show, Dear Jesse, has a hit record numbers and recently highlighted as one of the SAT's 7's best shows, one of the cable channel shows over there. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Our Oprah of the Middle East, you know. Okay. These are some baptisms. I believe this came from an article in March. Uh, recent baptisms. We've seen three in Egypt. One baptism in the new planting in Syria. And two baptisms here in Beirut. And by the way, these places are not like Culver City in Santa Monica or Englewood. Okay. These are places we're hearing about all the time. You just go to CNN.com and you just, you'll see these places come up for all sorts of reasons that make you grateful that you're in a safe place here. Okay, these three locations for baptisms are a very sensitive spot in the world scene right now. They need our prayers, and we believe they also need our financial support. At this point, Keith will be closing this out as he explains a few things. Thanks, Steve. Um, I did want to share a little bit about the Middle East. I know there's been some questions about maybe a little bit of lack of information coming to us about what's going on. And so I'll start off with uh, a very positive event for the last 12 months in the Middle East. The Middle, uh, the Middle East had an internship of campus students that went to go tr work on the campus there in the Middle East. So five students went, uh, two from San Diego, three from Los Angeles. Uh, they really did inspire the church. They, they inspired the church so much that the church had its best year ever it's a very small church, maybe around 30 people, and they had four baptisms this year. And they were really invigorated by having these kids uh, stay there. And you go, well, what was it like? Well, one of the things is these, these five members, they've endured, they endured four car bombings they could hear from where they lived. One was just a mile and a half away. And they could also hear the blast that killed seven and injured uh, 75 other, others that was targeted, at, uh, targeted and killed the former... Um, Lebanese uh, ambassador to the U.S. So it's not a safe place. They, they, they tried to stay in safe areas and stuff, but they went out there and really laid it on the line. Um, Guillermo's son, Guillermo Jr., actually applied, and you were going to pray that he'd get accepted, but he got accepted to 
the premier um, university in Beirut. It's the American University, and he wants to study uh, public health. He wants to get a master's in public health. And so I'm asking that you'd be praying. He's now got to apply for scholarships and things like that, but it's a two-year program. He wants to stay and work in the ministry there, and the only way to do that is to go there as a student. So he applied, got accepted, and so now we just got to figure out how to get his financing. So really pray for him, but that was very, very encouraging. But I think I wanted to give you the rundown for the last six months. Um, the Middle East, uh, basically it'll be six months to the day next Sunday, uh, had a tragic event. There was a car wreck. Uh, Maher Han uh, was killed. His wife, Summer, uh, and Sammy and Fadia, uh, who are his bro- sister and brother-in-law, were all severely injured. That happened. That broke down all the leadership that we really had in the Middle East from a structural standpoint. Maher was sort of the key person, and then he worked with some of us here in Los Angeles and in San Diego. So essentially, uh, Mike Rock... Guillermo Adami and Al Baird really are the liaison and the leadership from the stateside that helps the Middle East. And they really work primarily through Maher helping some of the other ones. So in the past six months, that, that, that went away. And, um, you know, there's a number of issues that have had to be dealt with. One is to figure out just how to sort of rebuild the, the structure, which we still haven't totally figured out. And the other thing is Mike and Guillermo and Al are volunteers when they go to the Middle East. And typically they'll each go for about two weeks during, the, during uh, a, a period of 12 months, and they'll have phone conversations, stuff like that. In the last uh, six months, they've each been there over a month. Mike's probably been there six weeks, just trying, to me- just trying to help the people there. So the challenges in the Middle East have been significant. That's why you haven't heard a lot of information Um, And Al just got back, and we got on a phone call with him yesterday, and he had about 15 things we need to address. There were a lot of things we could address very positively, but there's just a lot going on in the Middle East that really requires your prayer. And we still have uh, two or three of the people that were hurt in that car wreck that we're still having to provide medical care, and there's some additional surgeries that are needed. So your contribution this year is really going over to help put that group back together. There's a lot of people stateside that are volunteering. And obviously, if at some point, if you want to go, they, they, have, they have a family youth camp that they, the families go in Amman and go outside the city. And we went when our kids were little. We paid to take our kids there. And um, it was one of the best times we ever had. And we stayed. It's in a little YMCA. So we all shared one room, and we each had a sort of a single bed mattress on a little rack, you know. And just sort of, but we had a great time, and we were able to, those people, the people in the Middle East appreciate everything we give them. We went there, and they just loved whatever advice we could give them. Although you got to be careful, because they got to ask my kids questions. I just got to share this because it was sort of funny. So they asked my kids one question. One guy goes, okay, is there anything your dad has ever done that would cause you not to want to study the Bible? Those are the kind of questions they're going to ask your kids if you bring them, so just be prepared, because uh, they're not afraid to really get at, lay it out there. But they're really... They want to know, they want to learn, and they really appreciate it. And unfortunately, because of all this, we haven't got to get a few of them here to visit. But if you're ever interested in going and and serving in some capacity, please talk to me or Al or Marianne. We'll share with you about how you could potentially work it out, and it'll change your life. It it really, that was a turning point for our kids in a lot of ways when they got to go and help some other kids there in Amman and then also in Cairo. So... Thanks a lot, and I look forward to next week that we can give out of the gratitude of our heart to help the Middle East.